0: Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Agent Missional Podcast, and this is episode 94. And today we get to do our finale for our Women in Leadership series. And we're so excited to wrap this series up and to reflect on what we've learned, but also to continue to learn. Let's do this. Okay, 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 we are back and we are finally wrapping this series up. We were looking to wrap up the series because we did it last year, but we were like, you know what, if we're going to wrap up this series, we got to invite back the person who we started essentially this series or this idea of long time ago, many years ago, where we started to have a conversation about women in ministry. And, of course, the guest back then, and one of our favorite guests, is Lisa.
1: Lisa, how are you doing? Good. Episode 94. Wow. I know. Congratulations, guys. Thank Congratulations.
0: you. Congratulations. Thank you. Man, it's... You know, it counts like dog years. You know, every episode right. <laughs> is just like, <laughs> it's like a few years oh. of your life.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so in reality.
0: <laughs> it's <laughs> it's we're going
2: like to die yeah, soon. Yeah, no, 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 no Live Forever. No, 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 no,
1: no, 751. <laughs> Live
0: Forever. That's right. As always, Shu and Xenia are here. How are you guys doing? Mm-hmm. Here you go.
3: <sighs> Pretty good.
0: Yes. Good. That's awesome this is going to be a good time. This is going to be a good time, especially as we've had some time to reflect on our series that we did last year, and we're having a chance to do a wrap-up for today, as well as learn a little bit more, uh, because Lisa has been on her own journey as well. Mm -hmm. Now, a couple quick things before we start. I think we called this in one of our earlier episodes that by the next time that Lisa is on our podcast, she would be Reverend Dr. Lisa Pack. And to be true Ooh. of prophecy, that is true. She has got her doctorate of ministry, so we have to introduce her as Reverend Dr. Lisa Pack. It's exciting. It's Why, exciting.
1: Thank you. I <laughs> feel like my IQ has gone up just a little
0: bit more. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, it could, yeah. You know, you never know. Right? We're always learning. Hopefully, this is we're true. always going ahead you know, in that true. direction. This is that is good. That's good. Yes, we did that series and there's a lot to reflect on, but Lisa, we want to hear a little bit about how how you're doing. You know, what has been your journey over the last few years? And kind of as we talked a little bit about earlier, you were one of the first people we start to talk about on this podcast about women in ministry. And you've been such a great conversation partner over the years, whether on the podcast or outside the podcast. And we just want to hear about your experiences and your journey. And what that's been like over the last few years. In fact, you know, is there anything you would tell Lisa from three or four years ago about what you're learning about women in leadership and women in ministry?
1: Hmm. I think when I started the doctorate journey three years ago, as I mentioned before, I think we started recording that it's your whole life. I had had all these experiences prior to the doctorate journey but maybe not necessarily the tools to process them thoroughly with. I mean, it's in you. The experiences are in you. They shape you. They form you. And they're always floating about. But I didn't have the tools, so to speak, or the time. Honestly, the time. Because ministry, the pace of ministry, perhaps especially in the modern world, can be relentless if you're not very intentional. And from my Asian-Korean background, ministry does tend to have a faster pace without a break even. And it's almost considered as something honorable, like a badge of honor never to get rest, right? Which is a different podcast altogether, yeah. Oh right? man, Yeah, so I think there was a pause in my life and you just got to a point in your age. I think I was just under 40 when I started it, maybe 38-ish and you just got to a point where maybe it's time to take a pause and reflect and see how this leadership has culminated in your life, at least uh, up until this point. And I didn't realize when I started that the whole being a woman in ministry was such a serious angle. I had done my best to not make it an issue. Like, I'm just like everybody else. And then You realize that it is an issue. It's it's. I think it's a strength, but in in when you navigate certain circles, it can be a barrier. It can be a source of frustration and certainly a challenge. And just this expression of our human existence as a female who feels called to a leadership position it challenges other people but how do you do that well so you're not putting up more barriers or causing more volatility and more disunity in the body of christ like how do we do this well right without losing yourself in the process and always accommodating and giving in to the cultural pressures around you right so that's it's been very interesting if i can tell myself three years ago it would be that the journey is going to be much more personal than you expected. Because, you know, when you go into a doctorate, it feels very academic at some level, right? But it's going to be very personal and that it's necessary work and you'll be the better for it. And it would be very rich. It has been very rich. And it's equipped me well to understand past experiences and to process even in real time the experiences that one goes through in everyday life in the present.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. Wow. What was it like going through your program and then having that space and time in the program to then just realize all these things that were inside you for many, many years and as you kind of gave them language, as you kind of studied it more and realized kind of the depth of how this kind of affects our dynamics? Yeah, what was it like just to be like, oh, man, like I'm learning that. And that's kind of how I was feeling all these years.
1: Mm hmm. mm -hmm. It was interesting because I think one of the great blessings of my cohort was actually the cohort itself, like just the diversity and also the like flat out equal gender balance. I don't like in our cohort. It was such a weird thing. We did not have a single older white male. It was all like all our males were like, there's Alvardo, there's Gary, there's Daniel, who are all from different heritages. Mm -hmm. You know, he, um, Alvardo is a father in the um, Anglican tradition, Anglo-Catholic tradition, and he's from the Bahamian, and he was serving in the Turks and Caicos. And then Gary and Daniel are from a Chinese heritage, and we had Carl, who was of an Indian Jewish background. So it was just fascinating, the diversity in our cohort. And then, of course, a strong female contingent, literally 50%. And so I think that, to me, already just by the visual created a safe atmosphere. You just knew that there were common... Struggles and it was such a great cohort just to be with. And I think that on the outset just made you settle in a little bit faster, so to speak. And we, it was, it was a great experience to have such wonderful peers to journey with. So that on the outset was something that. I think was very significant, and interestingly, what was going on in my life outside the classroom also had a huge impact because I had just shifted from work from a Canadian nonprofit to working with unreached, unengaged people groups down in Southern California. And I will name the name Mike constance because he's been such an important influence in my life. And so, just to have certain leaders who are of a certain demographic, but real allies. And the Southern California environment is at least the one that I was in is Southern Baptist, but, and I had second guessed a lot. I mean, is this where the Lord is leading me? Because it felt (laughs) maybe I shouldn't just, you know, grab the bull by the horns this time because I'm recovering from so much, right? But it was studying and in parallel with this new context of ministry with leaders like Mike Constance, David Sean, who created this environment where you could be very independent and they respected you for who you were and the skill sets you brought. Um, so it was it was all that that was such a healing process as I engaged with the studies as well. And the studies of leadership theory systems, you know, what kind of tools that are out there, reflective processes, a learning organization, leadership development. Tools that helped you, like the MBTI and certain skills, strength finders, they were never focused on, oh, female leadership. They never were, but it's just everything about the way that this journey was structured helped me understand my role. Because again, as a female, you can't separate that out. How do you parse that out? Right. So I think that's where it was affirming in the sense that leadership is without gender and God does give leadership characteristics to both his sons and daughters, and now how do we live it out? That's the practical application. How do you live it out in a world where sometimes theology and doctrine of certain branches will say otherwise?
2: I find it so fascinating as well because of all the you know the news for Saddleback as a as a Southern Baptist church mm-hmm. that started ordaining women into ministry, and it, it's like it sounds like a natural direction for you to be involved in. So that that definitely like for me when I first heard it because I I've had my experience with Southern Baptists and I know Saddleback is the mo- the ones who are discerning that a lot more and trying to get ahead of that curve in in the Southern Baptist. So it does seem like a natural kind of. Fit for you. So yeah, praise God for that. Yeah.
1: And it was funny because I'm not serving in the church proper, so to speak. Like finishing the task, the UUPG arm is kind of separate. But then we are we're all under the same umbrella of you know Rick Warren right now. And he's already um transitioned out of the senior pastor, found a role of saddleback. So they're going through all these transitions as well. But to know that they made that stand and it's causing even now a little bit of a kerfuffle, like it's got some rippling effects and discussions and Ramifications and consequences, and it's causing discussion amongst other people as well. I think it's huge that they would move forward despite um, the ripple effects they probably knew it would have within their community and even in their church body. So I don't think these decisions can be made lightly, right? It's not just for one cause that we stand up. There's a lot of other conversations that need to happen, and it's often the um, issue of women and leadership are, are. It's like peripherally tied to other issues as well, and you just have to be aware of that as you step into that space. And there's a long-standing tradition, if I can call it that, that the decision to ordain women kind of goes against, and so it's. I think we have the luxury of not being in that environment and the North in Canada to look down, look literally not, not, not like look down upon them, but just like from the North, we're looking down to the South, right. In that sense to say, Oh, well, You know, they should have done this a long time ago, but it really is different when you're in the culture and you're with ministry partners and it's a serious conversation with people who have serious reservations and they have their biblical beliefs. And again, we don't want to alienate anyone. We're not here to cause more division, but maybe open conversation. But even that can be hard, that first step, because it was a decided issue for so many centuries and millennia. (laughs) So
0: yeah, for sure. Sure. Xenia, what are you thinking about as you're listening to Lisa?
3: Oh, well, I just want to know about some of her research that she's doing right now with the Lily Grant that sh- uh, she and her team have gotten.
1: Yeah, no, it was interesting because when I was asked to be the project manager for the Lilly Grant research project about how we can improve the pastoral internship experience for female pastoral interns, Um, It ran along right with my personal doctorate ministry research. So it just kind of like all converged into this exploration of my own experience and then using that almost as a platform to connect with other women from other traditions and other backgrounds and what makes them thrive. So for my my personal study was, okay, what were the challenges that I faced and how did I process them and how do we move forward from here? And the Lily grant was, okay, these are five excellent internships. How do we replicate this for other women? Right. And so in that sense, it was a great counterbalance to the way that I approached the subject in my study. And the women there they thrived. I, I just found this so fascinating and affirming. The women thrived in environments where their supervisor was just open, gave them access to all the resources one supervisor told an intern, you need to bring your full self to the internship and claim your voice, right? And the women thrived, and they really trusted their supervisors, and they continued on in relationship with them outside the formal internship time. So there was something that was real and authentic that was forged. And The supervisors, to their credit, um, were just so welcoming and open, and they saw the um, initiative and the desire of their interns, and they cultivated that. They stoked that. They helped them grow in that, and they gave them avenues to release that energy and that ministry desire. And I think that was just that nexus point of this is how we can really well, the pastoral imagination is a term that we use of our female pastoral interns. And it really paralleled my own experience with this current position that I'm in right now, my work with the UUPGs, because again, the and they are male, so I think I'm not saying anything unusual. All of my male supervisors that are around me were exactly the same posture. You're part of the team. You don't have to ask permission, bring your full self, making space. And even in those moments where I was like, am I really going to speak up here? They would notice that and say, okay, so what are you thinking? So just really of the same posture and looking at the gifts and the talents and affirming them. Even when I was like, yeah, I don't know if I want to um, step into that space right at this moment, but i making enough room to do that. And then not really forcing me, but. Yes, allowing to make my own choices, but certainly strongly supporting and encouraging that because I think they know that when a female walks into a certain room and everybody is male, or there's only like one other female who's typing notes, like you, it's a weird dynamic that you always have to recalibrate in your brain, and you have to gird yourself in a different way because you notice you are noticeably the minority for me, not only in um, gender but also in heritage and ethnicity, right? And so I think my that the Lilly Grant research was gold in so many ways, right? Just how not let's not just talk about the negative things that women face. What are the good things? What are the positive things that really contribute to a female leader's growth? So that was a different way to approach. And I think in many ways, that is a more constructive way. Of course, you need to examine the challenges as well. But at the end of the day, like these are the challenges, but now what are the good things? How do we make this fruit grow better, right? And so I really appreciate the approach that Dr. Draper, Dr. Krauss, and Dr. Yao Mansu they took with that.
3: One of the the best comments I thought you made on Tuesday was that, You said these are just normal conditions for things to thrive, for people to thrive in. So, why wouldn't this be the case for women? Mm -hmm. Um, And coincidentally, I actually was reading uh, a section of an essay by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was a first wave feminist, and by which I mean she was the one advocating for women voters in the United States. But she says the same thing like, if we equip, And she uses the soldier metaphor. If we equip equip the soldier with the basics, you know, food, with a a bedding, with a weapon, and then we give him instruction, wouldn't you expect the same if you, like, sent a woman into this world who is equally tossed around by the sea, like the the winds and waves of the storm of this world? And saying, like, women don't need to be protected by men. And often cases, women aren't protected by men. And so, how do we actually raise women up? And grant them the same sort of support that we offer our men. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that was really cool. Mm-hmm. And we should probably drop Tyndale's name here because I think we've been saying like where your projects are located. But it's a really big deal that you guys got this Lily grant. And I'm, yeah. I'm actually quite thrilled.
1: Yeah, Yep. Yeah. Um, Tyndale, I, f- I have found to be a very open environment, very sp- supportive, not just open, actually, very supportive for their female students coming in. And I I really like that analogy of the soldier, because if you don't equip the soldier and you're like, see, they can't hold their own against the enemy. Well, it's because like, and then you perpetuate this cycle. Oh, see, they're not good enough, but you've never equipped them. And then it also feeds into the self-esteem of the individual woman who is like, well, maybe I am not good enough because clearly I can't hold my own. So it's like this weird self perpetuating cycle that keeps women in a certain place and you and i wrote a paper you know the proper place for a woman right which was provocatively titled because everyone's got their idea of what a proper place for a woman is and traditionally speaking i think in the church there has been carved out roles and the church, I think we witnessed this in COVID too, is not an early adopter. Like we're ju- we're just not. And sometimes that's not a bad thing. There is caution. We just don't want to adopt everything that the world says is great and good. But I think what's lacking is the honest conversation about some of these issues and why they're coming to fruition and an honest assessment of our the different views on certain passages and how we approach women and. Um, the different personalities of women. It's just like not every man has the same personality. It's the same thing for women, right? I don't know why you just kind of like have this big swall and women are and then A, B, C, D, E when you would never do that for a man, right? In terms of leadership and ability and whatnot. So, but yeah, I think that's a very good analogy, Senia. That's, I, I never had thought of it that way, but yeah.
0: Just in terms of listening to stories and observing, it makes me think and wonder What is God doing right now, specifically in the history of the church, as it pertains to men and women to lead and minister together? And I think this is part of hearing the stories from the series that we did last year and how there was an acknowledgement that there were certain challenges in the past and the uniquenesses of journeys and the challenges that some women faced just because they were women. And some of the roundabout processes that they that they had to go on. But in the midst of kind of sharing all these challenges and some subtle and not so subtle ways that there was this hopefulness. And then I feel like almost every one of our guests were looking forward and getting a sense that there's something stirring up in this moment of history. And so... Do you feel similar, that there's something kind of different now, that there's more openness and there's more willingness to dive deeper in and to wrestle with this and to be supportive and to be led by one another in, in different ways? Because it seems like from you know a lot of our conversations from the past with our other guests as well, is that there wasn't as much openness in the past, but there is something happening now. Do you feel the same way?
1: I do. I do, especially perhaps in the Western world. I know there are still pockets um, where this discussion is starting to begin. But by and large, I think that when you talk about women's rights, right, that we couldn't even vote probably within the last century. Right. It's, It's just astounding how how many advancements or progress has been made. And I think that does influence like the culture, the greater culture that the church is in is influenced. Like it'd be naive to think that we didn't, the influence didn't go both ways. And so as education, voting rights, women's rights to, you know, go to school, get a job, you know, get divorced or, you know, whatever it might be to be financially independent, you know, um, to not have to take their husband's name, all these things I think that were, what we will call advancements in the secular world kind of opened the door for the church to rethink some of their position on women as well. I don't think that it's the same all over the world though. I think that would be naive as well, whether they're a Christian country or not, right? Whether they are a secular country, a democratic country or not, I think we can see that there is a lot, there are a lot of cultures out there or worldviews that still consider women second class. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious when you're marrying away like 11-year-old, 12-year-old girl without her choice and just because that's her job and that's her existence to bear children for other folk, right? Whom And she doesn't even get a choice in it. So I think it is there is a privilege, and I'm going to use that word lightly because it's in comparison to other places in the world. Um, there is a privilege that women who are educated, born, or you know educated in the West or have the opportunity in the West that we have, but nowhere in the world, and you can read this statistics and this kind of research and data from Dr. Gina Zerlo, nowhere in the world are women considered completely equal as men. There's a gender pay cap. There are just other rights and just assumptions that are made. Nowhere in the world are we at perfect equality yet. Do you know? I struggle with this these days, and I'm not sure if that's my battle, though right? To achieve perfect equality on this side of heaven. Is it even possible? It's a theoretical possibility. Should we stop working towards it? No, I think we should always. Um, I just feel that with the work that I'm kind of really passionate about, which is getting the good news of Jesus to the least and the last, the people who have yet to hear, I think women are a natural strategy. It seems to be very confounding if we're not going to empower women and let them take leadership roles within the church and within whatever culture they might be couched in. I don't know that we are asking blatantly for titles and authority so much as recognition of women's gifts and God's spiritual gifts and talents that God gives to his daughters within the church body, right? So it's a very complex issue for me. And I think we need to navigate it well, depending on the, the greater culture that we're talking in, right? So I think Canada is very open. I think many Canadian churches are very open to women leadership. I think, again, there are enough out there that are still working towards an honest conversation, which is fine. But if I'm going to go to a, a Southern Baptist community, I should know the context. Like, I'm not there to cause more trouble. In other words, I know who I am, and I want to carry myself in a way that is winsome, not Unnecessarily causing debate because apparently this issue is a hot topic issue as it is, and I do, we use this word a lot in secular media. Deescalate, right? Let's not add more fuel to the fire. But how do we frame this conversation in a totally different way so that we're not falling into the same ruts of debate that we have been over the last decades? So yeah, that's just the way that I've been thinking about it these days because I think I have found great male allies and advocates and people who have been just real friends in the journey and like gender just did not matter. We were all out for the same goal. I um, mean, I did not feel disrespected. I think there are some blind spots, but I mean, I'm a, I'm a female. I don't understand everything about guys either. Do you know what I mean? There's always going to be blind spots because personality, because of life experience. So if we acknowledge the fullest of our own human frailty and our own blind spots, I think there's enough grace to go around to have honest discussion. It's just what, what hurts is when pre, preconceived notions and assumptions are made just because of my gender. Like, it's the same thing. We're all Asian on this and somebody is surprised at how how well we speak English. It's like, ah, there was an assumption that was made, right? And maybe, you know, 100 years ago, it would be a more likely assumption because, you know, the immigrants were just coming or whatnot. But come on, in the 21st century, you're going to be surprised that somebody who looks like Shu speaks English well. It, so that that is what it, when it becomes hurtful, I think. And not helpful in the conversation it's we need more exposure we need to be able to converse more openly about these things
2: i think it's so key that what you just said there that a lot of a lot of these issues yes of course there's a huge you know theological debate and all these things but a lot of it is making those direct theological assumptions and then then you start just creating that wall but then not even engage relationally and understanding gifting in in what's happening in in you know whatever gender mm-hmm. but the thing is that there's all, all, this automatic thing that pops up whether it's because of our you know cultural upbringing or whatnot but will we i think the thing that keeps going on in my mind is just have we taken that time for a relationship to 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 know what the other person's all about and does does the gospel of Jesus Christ kind of speak into that as well or is it just no the gospel is just about your personal sin you know and you know God dealing with that and that's it. But does that, does Jesus kingdom also flip around some of, you know, and has to make us question certain things, uh, whether it is societal and whether, it, you know, in this conversation, particularly with gender and leadership. And I think what you said is so bang on. It's, like it's these assumptions that we make, but don't kind of build more relationally into actually what's going on. So I, that, that's something I, I definitely resonate with there.
1: mm mm-hmm.
3: mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Lisa, you talk a little bit about your work with the majority world, and you have a very interesting stat about women Christians in the majority world. Do you know how how much of the Christian population in the majority world are actually female?
1: Okay, so I need to refer to a good friend of mine, Sheila Chan, who is a research assistant at the um, Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell, and she works with doctors Todd Johnson and Gina Zerlo. So this was a presentation she gave just last week, and it's um, pretty fresh in my mind. And I've yet to meet a missiologist who will not say that the center of Christianity is uh, moving to the global South and to the East. Like everybody agrees. There's nobody who will not say that. At least I haven't met a person like that. And if that's the case, when you look at the global South and the percentages of church attendance, the average is like 52% women in many circles, it goes a lot higher than that, right? In many, many nations where the women are the driving force of the church, of church life in the global South. And then this was also provocative and we had to think about how we were going to approach this, but we it was kind of tongue in cheek and it was like, well, then, you know, if that's the case, then could it be said that Christianity in the global South is a women's movement? And then that, of course, sparks different Ideas of what a woman's movement is, because there are some that even I would disagree with. I, I would not go that far, but then it's a provocative term. So when you throw something like that out there, it sparks debate like automatically, right? What does that mean, a woman's movement? We're not saying that men are not involved. My goodness, there are excellent, godly men that I would go to war for, you know, just like men that I would follow immediately because they have such godly characters of leadership. But does that automatically exclude women? So basically, Xenia, that stat was somewhere around the 52% mark, and it it depends on each nation as well that you're looking at. But Sheila did such a great presentation. And if anyone is interested, um, you just need to go to the website for the Center of the Study for Global Christianity, get her information from off of that, and just email her. And she's happy to, she would be happy. I am volunteering her. (laughs) She would be happy to address any of those things. Like, she's great. This is part of her passion too, right? Hey, I just want to loop back
0: around a little bit and talk a little bit about your thesis when you did your doctor of ministry as well, kind of to shift a little bit of the focus. And I want to hear, it's been about a year since I think you had made that presentation, which by the way, was a fantastic presentation. I remember just sitting there and uh, my wife and I were actually sorting things out in the basement. And we're just listening to your thesis presentation live. And we couldn't do any of our housework because we were just sitting there and we're just listening. We're like, whoa, that's a lot to kind of digest and think about. And you shared a lot of stories from your interviews and from your studies and from your research. And it was fascinating. And so I want to ask a little bit about, you know, looking back on doing your thesis, could you share a little bit with us about You know, what was that like? How how have you continued to reflect on it? And you mentioned it both earlier in this podcast, but also during your thesis presentation, how deeply personal it was. And so, yeah, could you share a little bit about going through that process?
1: For sure. Do you know what? Um, It's actually only been six months because it was May. Of this year, um, which blows me, right? Pandemic it time. Blows, I know, <laughs> it's like, it, I have speeds speed things up or shortens things down. But I think there's a part of me that feels like it's that long because again, you've lived with it your entire life. So yeah, no, it was deeply personal because again, this is a community that I grew up in and I felt those restrictions or limitations, but I never processed them. So one of the things that I shared was that I felt called to ministry, but I never thought, never crossed my mind though it was ordained ministry. So academic is the way that I'm going to go, right? Just to circumvent the whole issue. I don't want to talk about these passages, whatever. I'll just circumvent it and just try to go around it. And then God had me go through the thick of it. When I was told by an older Korean senior pastor of the church that I was serving in um, Korea, Onari Church, Hayoungjo um, Moksanin, Pastor Hayongjo, um, he was like, you need to get ordained. And to have his support was like a huge first step. And it was just like Changed my mind just a little bit, like you know that first, really I can get ordained. Like it just never crossed my mind because I had never seen an example. And we, when you never see an example of somebody who is like you doing something, it's really hard to imagine it, right? So that when you think of a CEO, um, businessman, I, I even now I tend to default to an image of a man right? In my brain, if someone was going to say that, and if I'm going to be frank and honest, when you say senior pastor, that's where the image will com- go to as well, an older gentleman. And there are fantastic older male senior pastors out there. I'm not saying that that's wrong. It's just a default. But when you never see it for a female, it's hard for you to even imagine that that's even an opportunity or a pathway that you can create for yourself or that God is even calling you into. And so this was deeply personal because I'm now looking back in my Korean culture about and so much of it I love like where did the prayer go people right like the first generation <laughs> that that, that nice. heritage of prayer right w- Or waking up in the early morning in that hour where you just like sacrificing your sleep and everything and you're starting your day like that kind of prayer that that is the type of prayer that starts movements right we haven't really picked up on that in the second gen. We we wake up later, we try to fit in prayer in our schedules. So again, there's a lot of my Korean Christian culture that I love, love, love. The respect for elders 100%. I think that that's something we can always, you know, grow in. But what was hard was when you saw all the women who were so capable in the secular world, all they did was go to the kitchen and decide whether we were going to have rice cakes or eggs or something for Easter. And it was just like it was such a weird disconnect for me. And God bless my mom. She sometimes went to the kitchen, but she also didn't like she did if she didn't want to do and there was no reason for her to go and help somebody then she wouldn't go because there were other things that she needed to do and take care of. And so she never set the example of being forced to go work in the kitchen. And I Like you try and you try and you can only do so much before you just realize that maybe the kitchen is not your place, which is anathema, right? When all the women are there and you're the only woman that's not there, then it's just you feel like you should conform, which is another huge part of the Asian culture, that idea of conformity and not causing trouble and keeping your head down low just for the sake of the greater community. And which is not necessarily a bad thing, but to at what cost, right? At the cost of what? Um, One Mm. of the girls mentioned, and she was one of my youth kids, and she's now a young adult and, you know, wonderful career of her own. And she reflects back and she said that there was no girls soccer team. And this was true. And it was always the boys. And if you wanted to play soccer, you had to play with the boys. And it was just an exception to the rule rather than why can't girls play soccer. Whereas when you go to schools all over Canada and Toronto, like there's always a girl's soccer team, there's a girl's basketball team, there's a girl's swimming team, there's co-ed this. And so when you feel that in the church and in the greater culture, there's this embracing of women and girls in different areas of sports. I think that was a dissonance. And I think that does a number on you because when you come to church, you know how to behave. You know your church mode as a female where your place is in the church. It's not in the elder section room. It's not on the pulpit on a Sunday. If it is on the pulpit on the Sunday, you're doing a prayer, singing a song, or sharing a testimony. And so these positions of decision-making power were not given. They were not given freely or reluctantly. They were just not given to women. And to not have that example, I think is very hard. And one of the other girls, and this was this, I had never thought about it this way. And she was like, it's traumatic. I'm like, traumatic. Wow. And she literally said, it's not that a gun was put to our heads. That's a different kind of trauma. But every day, everything about your culture is saying that you're lesser and lesser than the boys. It ta- it's like this. It ebbs away at you year after year, experience after experience, and this idea of this feminine ideal. And this was a different interview where it's like you're you want you're you're expected to be beautiful, but not promiscuous, you know, super thin and just obedient, but not too much of a doormat. It's just this weird thing and this ideal that you. It's hard to maintain that, and you feel suppressed, and you have to conform and behave a certain way. We all knew how to behave in church, but I think there was an extra layer on the girls. And it was very important to me and affirming, but also I had to wrestle through this when, again, some of the interviews that I did were from my formal youth kids when these girls were like, you know, it meant such a difference that you came and were our pastor. And then I'm thinking, did I somehow inadvertently perpetuate this for them? Right. Did mm. I somehow did I say something to how I carried myself? Did I perpetuate this idea for them? So I had to do that kind of thought experiment with myself. And the best that I got that would help me a little bit is I did the best I could. That's all I had, you know, in that moment, and I hope that I didn't. And these girls were very gracious, saying that even me being there as a female pastor who has a stronger personality and just a little bit more assertive than I guess um, some other people that they have met, it meant a difference to them, you know, that I was there and I would lead in a certain way. And I would, I eventually became the education director and stuff like that. And when you know Reverend Lim was detained in North Korea, I was the public face of the whole, you know, PR stuff. So I think in that sense it was very encouraging and I hopeful encouraging. And I, it's the, it's the best I had in that season of my life. And I just really tried to live out who I was, regardless of me being a girl and other guys not being a girl. Right. And it was hard to navigate that sometimes. And you do have to think about how you're going to say certain things because you don't want to reinforce any stereotypes that you're just angry or you're bitter or any of that. And a part of me was like, but what did you expect? You just, Want us to be happy about all this and docile and like, oh sure, I'll just accommodate everything and be happy about it, so it's just weird tension that you have to live in, right and by the grace of God, I've had some very wonderful students and who were encouraging along the way as well.
0: Wow, thank you for sharing that
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah it's It's a lot to continue to process and you know to peel back some of those layers and to see where we've come from, see what perpetuates, see where we're at, and to consider what does this mean for us now and, and what God is continuing to do. I mean, mm. I remember just hearing in your thesis presentation about how you were even talking about how there's some Korean words that, you know, define specific roles and how that language kind of perpetuates or continues to describe, you know, a type of dynamic in a certain way. And I was like, wow, it's you know you never kind of think about these kind of things until you're kind of doing a deeper dive
1: yeah 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 like there's a specific word for pastor's wife which is hamonim and it's it's like an honorific title because like there's no real translation in the english right it's just it's an honorific title for a pastor's wife but that is literally based on the assumption that the pastor is a man right and so there's no equivalent to when the pastor is a female and there's like the guy, like, what's the equivalent for a pastor's husband? Is there an honorific title for pastor's husband? There isn't. And it's just, you can see how the language um, from the outset of the church growing in the Korean culture, like, there were certain things that were assumed. And one of the things that sinia and I um, examined was just a Confucian undergirding that kind of shaped the idea of women in the church as well. And that's fascinating how we grew up with these words that reinforce a certain worldview. I will say worldview and theology, because I think sometimes they do go together, especially in the church. And words are powerful. I know that nim is used to refer to males as well, perhaps especially in the Methodist tradition of Korea. But I had never seen a male gonzanim until my earlier years. And the gonzanims were always in the kitchen. There were the women who, it was like the equivalent of elder, but they created another word from my Presbyterian limited background, like all the kunza names were females who made the food in the kitchen. And so that was their honorific title, but their role was limited to making food, taking care of children, you know, serving in the women's ministry, like all that administrative, more traditionally feminine roles. And they, there was no pathway for a female to become an elder. At least, not in the communities that I has were was exposed to. And again, to be fair, I have met male konzaneums in the karmigye, like in the Methodist Korean Church. So that threw me off a little bit because I'd never met a male gonzanim until o- when I was older. But again, words are powerful and the images are powerful. And just to go back to something that you mentioned, um, this re- you just reminded me of it, John. The whole idea that sometimes a great challenge is other women who will reinforce that women have to behave a certain way and women should mm. only teach over children and women should stand by their man i don't disagree with any of it but what i am saying is that women are more than that of course you know as a husband mm. and a wife you should stand by each other why why shouldn't women teach over children like of course but so should men and, and but i feel like when you limit it to just that we might be creating boundaries and missing out on what else women can offer. <laughs> it's,
2: it's so jokes. I keep thinking in the Chinese side of the honorific title "simo," and then we have you know some female pastors and their husbands. Like we joke around calling them "si but it's just like this. It's it's almost like a effeminate term. Like you almost make it. It feels like that, but yet. It's Mm. not really honorific. It's almost like, uh, you know, under backhanded compliment kind of thing, you know, and, but at the same time yet, that's the role they're playing. And a lot of them actually are like, yeah, I back up my wife. I I back her up as a pastor. So, but it is interesting how even that kind of enculturates you. So, uh, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) I am sure, Lisa, we could chat much, much longer on this topic, but I think what you are bringing, especially as we're wrapping up this series, is that this is an ongoing journey, and this is something that will be going on, and we need to continue to push deeper into it. And the article that you know you and Xenia wrote is available if anyone is interested, if you want to buy a copy of the, show the notes and future. Put it in the show notes. Uh, we'll put in the show notes, the <laughs> link right there, but also if you look it up anywhere, the present and future of evangelical mission Academy, Agency, Assembly, and Agora Perspectives from Canada, also edited by Xenia. Oh, man, that's, that's mm-hmm. super awesome. Mm-hmm. So please pick up a copy of that to read Lisa and Xenia's article. That is just so, such great work. Lisa, you know, just as we're kind of signing off and just want to ask you a question, you know, as we do look ahead, what do you think God is inviting us into what do you think he is asking us to trust him in as we continue to consider and discern and we consider you know, what does it mean for men and women to continue to lead together?
1: Mm. I know that he is not inviting us into another debate of endless debate on what our positions are. I think he's inviting us into community. I think sometimes the framing of the terms that are so prevalent, complementary and egalitarian, there's a part of me that thinks that we've been framing that the wrong way too. There's gotta be more than just the two, right? And I think when we're in relationship with each other, that is authentic and that is truly loving. Some of these other things fade into the background inappropriately. So- I think for me, and and I, and I specifically say this because I don't want to impose it upon everybody else, I have come to realize that I don't want to have to defend my leadership to every single person who does not agree. And that's fine. We're going to like, I believe I'm going to go to heaven and we'll sort it out there. If maybe my, my passion is, listen, there are people out there who are dying um, without even having access to Jesus. So that's my goal. And if you want to work with me on that, hey, let's figure that out. That's not the hill I'm going to die on, like defending myself. And I was just saying this the other day, Senior was there, I just do not have enough life left in me to engage consistently in that kind of talk. And if I can win you over with my posture, I hope I do. I hope that I'm not. Volatile. I hope I'm not bitter. I hope that I am winsome. And that's where I think real conversations about leadership and what it looks like can take place. And leadership is not always structured the way that I think the world and the church sometimes has currently structured it. Um, I mean, it's much more subversive than that. And so there's a lot of hope for me, like you said, I mean, it's it's interesting that despite the struggles, there's a lot of hope. And I think it's because of the people I've met along the journey. Again, for me, interestingly, it's been mostly men that have given me the hope in my leadership and affirmation. But I hope that for other younger women, it's going to be a good mix of sisters and brothers who have been on the journey a little bit longer than they have were able to encourage them. So
0: thank you for painting that picture. Thank you for sharing your heart and your posture. And I think that was a great way to wrap up our series as this conversation, as this journey continues on. So thank you so much for joining us, Lisa.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: (laughs) And thank you to all of you, our listeners, for joining us on this conversation. It's been quite the journey of listening and unpacking and continuing to be hopeful of what does it mean like for men and women to lead together in community. And we hope that this Women and Leadership series has been a blessing to you and hopefully has stirred up good questions and good postures for how to continue this conversation in your own context. We'd love to hear what you think and how you're continuing to wrestle You can always reach us by Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by email, contact.campodcast at gmail.com. That's contact.campodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Share with us your experiences and what you've been going through in this journey. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate and review and subscribe to our podcast and share it with others. This helps us to get this conversation out there and continue to invite more people to be part of it. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Agent Missional Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time. Peace.